You're listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. All right, how's it going, guys? It's Darren with the Muzzleloaders Podcast, and uh, we are here on another episode, and uh, we are with Mike Freiberg, and we're going to be talking about optics today. Uh, We're going to be going in-depth and uh, dispelling a lot of rumors and things that people may have had misconceptions about and stuff like that, and uh, Mike, you have years of experience in the optics world working uh with nikon and all that kind of stuff and so but let's go ahead and get a little bit of introduction so um how long have you been in the industry what do you do like all that kind of stuff yeah sure um well let's see i mean technically speaking if the the broad industry i i pretty much started straight out of college in 2005 Mm -hmm. getting more into the hunting shooting side of things uh, really came about heavily in 2014 and I kind of made my entrance into the market uh, working with Nikon Sport Optics. That's sort of uh, what sort of the route I took. Mm-hmm. And then eventually that expanded into me uh, setting up shop in the Pacific Northwest and kind of running my own sales company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you do, you're, you rep, right, for uh, different brands and things. I do. So we operate with, well, I haven't done the count recently, but it's roughly about 15 different outdoor and shooting manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Some of them work under umbrella corporations where you're going to have multiple brands underneath, you know, sure. one name. Uh, so we carry in effect a, little, a few more than that, but essentially, yeah, we, uh, we, you know, I run a, a small sales rep agency. Um, and I say small because we try to keep it that way. We don't want to get mm-hmm. too big and we're just trying to have fun on the road. We enjoy selling the product, going door to door and selling things we believe in. Totally. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of sets you guys apart from from a lot of other people is that, uh, you know, because we've had an awesome relationship with you guys for a long time. And just because you are small, you're able to spend that kind of time and actually care about the people that you're dealing with rather than having, you know, a million different reps underneath you and sending them out and, and doing their thing, you know. Yeah, we try to, I mean, the guys that I worked with and the guys I kind of learned under were a little bit more old school. Mm-hmm. So we, I've always tried to put the emphasis on actually traveling, being with the customer, spending time in the field. You know, you also meet more consumers and users that way of your products and you yeah. try to learn, you know, I, one of my, one of the things I try to focus on is giving as much feedback as possible to my manufacturers. Um, that's one of our jobs in theory, mm-hmm. right? We, you know, the manufacturers not, does not have the boots on the ground. We do. And so we just try to try to find out what information, good or bad, that we can give them, provide them, and, and hopefully improve the company overall as time moves on. 100%. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. totally. I mean, that's that benefits the the consumer as well, you know. Yeah. And um, so, well, anyways, I, it's great getting to know you, um, and we're happy that you're here. actually able to make it up to LeGrand, too. Yeah, I miss it's, it. I mean, I, all the time <laughs> I used to just drive out on the interstate and um, coming up over the hill, you know, mm-hmm. good fond memories, obviously hunted in the area quite a bit, and um yeah, it's great. And I even saw a, a billboard for Side A Brewing on the uh, on the yeah. interstate there. That was kind of I thought, hey, well, they're really branching out, right? Oh, totally. So, yeah. So Legrand is growing, and it's uh, it's great to be here. It's a beautiful place. Hundred percent. Appreciate the invite. Yeah, totally. And hopefully, when we go out and make videos later, we'll be able to see another great gray owl. But, yeah. Uh, we'll see. It's I, only. I would never. I've never in my life expected that bird, uh, <laughs> uh, like a massive raptor, to show up at the, at the gun range at the pistol bay anyway. Yeah, totally. So yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. A hundred percent. And and I guess you're, you're an, an ornithologist, right? Previously. Yeah. I studied birds most of my life and that's kind of how I got into the outdoor world. But you know, for me, I think, um, I tried to be as versatile as possible mm-hmm. and I'm interested in a lot of things. Shooting was always on my radar and certainly hunting. I just really didn't have the resources or background for it when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got older. I obviously started working in the industry, 
Um, started going to some shoots just through through Nikon primarily, and then eventually kind of took off on it, you know, on my own mm-hmm. and created my rep group. And I was pretty green getting into it. You know, it's, yeah. it definitely took a lot of time. I'm still learning. I mean, especially when you're talking about ammo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just all There's the, so much to know. All the different knowledge that goes into all the specific types of ammo out there. So constantly learning, but really interested in it, and just love the lifestyle. Yeah, totally. Well, there's there's, no, there's always something new to learn, especially like yeah. in the outdoor industry. I mean, you could never really reach the extent of it. There's so much science, and things are constantly evolving. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it shoot. You know, as you know, going to shot show just alone. Yeah, trying to get around, you see how many innovative companies are coming to coming to the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Every year, shot show is growing. All these other shows seem to be growing, and it's uh, it's overwhelming at times, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, even just trying to get around to that show trying to see all these different manufacturers it takes a lot of time but uh, again you know ever as every year passes i learn a little bit more i become a little more wiser and i know what questions to ask and uh, and i think the most important thing is i'm still interested in it totally totally and i guess so what what led to like the transition from you know being like an ornithologist to to like being involved in the outdoors like what was the defining moment of you know because i've heard a little bit about what you used to do just going through the woods and like documenting taking pictures of birds and stuff and that sounds like like an amazing job for me you know it's great i will say you have to at some point i think everybody comes to that decision where you realize okay you you can go two routes so my route was either i i could either go be an international guide right work for a couple of, of larger companies and just mm-hmm. travel around the world and guide uh, people on bird watching and travel adventure trips and that was absolutely an option and the other option was potentially go out on my own, start my own business, uh, potentially have, you know, I should say the potential to earn more, mm-hmm. right? So it comes down to that, that I want to be on the road constantly because I am on the road a lot now, but as a yeah. guide, quite literally, you're, I mean, geez, most years you could probably, so I think some guides spend 270, 280 days on the road, whereas wow. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't spend that kind of time on the road. And yeah, I just, you know, the oper- it was a flip of a coin, uh, I will say that I didn't think I wanted to travel quite that much. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought at some point, yep, I may want to have a family. I'm, I'm going to need to position myself to be, you know, to be in an area where I could just travel on a regular basis, but also be home and be present. Yeah. Um, obviously, the earning potential that comes with sales, mm-hmm. it's very cyclical. It's up and down, mm-hmm. um, but the, the, potential the potential is there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I think there was, I was up for new challenges. You know, when I was doing the birding market specialist, uh, that was my title for Nikon. So I was doing that role. Um, you know, I was working a lot of shows. I was guiding quite a bit, but, you know, I was just up for more challenges, mm-hmm. essentially, and this presented it. Yeah, you want to learn something new. Yeah, you know? definitely. And I think because I pride myself on being fairly diverse and just wanting to explore everything that the outdoors had to offer, that mm-hmm. included shooting, uh, that, um, yeah, that was it, it was the right, right move to make, and it made for, I think at that time, I was just ready to make a jump. Sure, yeah. yeah. Makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I got to see, um, I was driving to work the other day. And it was right at twilight. It was right after the, the daylight saving. So um, it wasn't totally dark. And I saw a great horned owl just sitting just right on top of a, um, uh, like a speed sign. Sure. And I'll just show you the video later. I got made fun of because um, I was pretty excited about it. But uh, yeah, I, I think I think birds are cool. Filming a bird, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, it's a great horned owl. Like, what's the big deal? You know? Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, birds are often misunderstood. I mean, I, I know, you know, in the hunting world, shooting world, they're 
an afterthought. It's not a primary focus, but mm-hmm. you know, if you've learned, depending on where your interest lies, I mean, great, great horned owl is a pretty formidable predator. Yeah. So I think if a lot of people knew what they, or learned what a lot of the life habits of a great horned owl, you realize it's, it's kind of a, I mean, it, it, it's a bully of an owl. I mean, totally. they, they, they do some cool things and yeah, but it's not everybody's point of interest, but for mm-hmm. me, I just, you know, Hey, it's just about exploring the outdoors and enjoying it all. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess enough on birds. We can kind of jump into optics now. <laughs> sure, Those of you, of thank you for suffering with the uh, you know our bird conversations. So, right. <laughs> um, but uh, so optics. Um, you know, you have a lot of experience and a lot of things that I know about optics. I actually learned from you when you we, you did our trainings. Like sure. when I was uh, you know just new at the company. Sure. And so the first thing I kind of want to dispel, and this is a video I actually made recently uh, on our YouTube channel, so uh, you can check that. I'll I'll put a card up above for you, those of you watching on YouTube. Um, but optic clarity. So oftentimes people see a magnification and they're like, Oh, okay. So that's a, a 12 power binocular or, you know, like a 25 power scope or whatever, you know, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And they think of that as e- equaling a higher quality optic. Sure. And so, um, magnification is only a piece of the story because there's so much more to it when it comes to like glass clarity and that sort of thing. And so, um, can you shed a little bit more light on that? Yeah. So I think, there's obviously multi multiple layers to that and things to consider. So magnification is great. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that when I started shooting uh, the National Rifle League circuit, I, I did a few matches with them. I ended up shooting with a, a just a primo shooter who was a former Marine Scout sniper. Mm. I was asking about magnification. Of course, this is on the shooting end of things. But I had, I think I was, so my scope reaches out to 17 power. Uh, his is 16 and he said he will never go past 16 because and I knew why but I still listened to what he obviously had to say mm-hmm. but the reality is when you're going out depending on the application too much magnification you're going you have to remember you're you're magnifying any kind of tremor or shake that you might have yeah. any movement whatsoever you know if you're looking at a mirage out there the water vapor in the distance mm-hmm. right you're going to magnify on that so it's going to only basically degrade the image even more and it's just it's just hard to find a subject. There's no field of view. So when you the natural physics of optics is when you zoom in on something, you lose field of view. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to have that point and that frame of reference, even when you're shooting. And a lot of guys, hey, look, you want to make some quick quick last minute win decisions, right? At the last second, you yeah. can see if you have enough field of view, you could see potentially some blades of grass, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there's even a flag in view, but a lot of times it's the grass out in the open prairie mm-hmm. that you could see. So you can make those adjustments, but um, too much magnification will, if it's if it's too much for the application you're using it for, it's going to degrade your image, mm-hmm. and you're not going to enjoy what you're doing. Now, when it comes to glass, um, again, it's kind of a loaded question. There's a lot to consider. For me, when I talk about it, I talk about the grade of glass, the lens coatings themselves, and then when it's applicable, let's say in a binocular, the, the prism coatings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's those are three different levels. Um, you know, glass. Unfortunately, with grades of glass, there's some key terms that the consumers have access to, but it's not really broken down the way I think it should be. I think a lot of it, most of these manufacturers keep it, it's proprietary information, mm-hmm. and they want to kind of keep it in-house. But ED is one one level of glass that I discuss. so extra low dispersion. You'll also see that advertises HD, 
And that's just an advertising thing, but it's basically the same level of glass. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing with ED glass is that there's over 250 different types, roughly. I mean, probably probably wow. this day and age, there's probably a few more that I don't know about, right? Mm-hmm. They don't label them, though. So it's really up to the consumer to understand what they're looking at to a degree. And then hopefully the manufacturer is doing a good job of, of sort of leading them in the right direction with their marketing, yeah. right? Um, so you have 250 different types. Let's just say it's that number. But you literally, if you start at the base level of that, there are some, I mean, there's some scope or there's some glass types that aren't very good. Mm-hmm. So what ED glass actually does, it's a, it's a denser glass, okay? And the denser the glass, the better the colors are, and, and to some degree, the, the resolution, the sharpness, mm-hmm. but it's mostly about colors, all right? And you can have an ED glass that's not very good, but then you also have ED glass at the top of the zone that you're, you know, when you're talking about your major manufacturers, um, you know, whether it's Japanese or German manufacturers, when mm-hmm. they use their ED glass, I mean, they're usually using kind of that top tier. Yeah. And that's why you can see optics that have ED glass that range from, gosh, I think this day and age, probably 200 bucks all the way up to three, four, five grand, mm-hmm. depending on the company. Yeah. So ED glass is something to consider, um, but it's not the end all, right? There's also lens coating. So, ne- of course, glass has a natural reaction to reflect light. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with an optic, you're trying to absorb that light. Yeah. So companies like Nikon, for example, will come up with their own proprietary lens coating and they'll, and it's an anti-reflective coating. So the whole objective there is to actually bring in light, right? Mm -hmm. Gather it, bring it back to your eye. And there are some key terms there, um, you know, silver alloy, um, aluminum alloy coatings and things of that nature, but it's, there isn't a lot there for the consumer to work with. Mm -hmm. That's why testing out the optic is so important. And I also think for consumers too, when you come into a store, you, you take an optic. I think the fir- the natural reaction is to go right outside and look if it's a yeah. bright sunny day. But the reality is, you can have a, a an optic that's really not very good. It's a piece of garbage that you'll take it out next <laughs> to a, a high end optic, and yeah. it kind of looks similar. Mm-hmm. But that's not the truth. When you're paying up with optics, you're paying for again, depending on the kind of optic you're buying, you're paying for that extra that low light performance boost. Yeah. Among other things, if you're talking about scopes, you're also paying for reticles and things of that nature, potentially mm-hmm. tube size, the extra glass that goes into making all that. So I think probably evaluating the grade of glass is the most important thing, first and foremost. Yeah. You know, uh, In theory, and, and what I've seen out there, that if the glass is being manufactured in either uh, from Germany or Austria and in Japan, you're, you're starting at a very really great level at that mm-hmm. point because those companies have rich tradition and history with, with glass making mm-hmm. and, um, and, and you're going to pay up for that kind of stuff, but it generally, it ends, it, it, it ends up giving the consumer a much better experience. Mm-hmm. And if the binoculars built better as well, you know, with, with structure of it, it's just going to be more durable. hundred percent. So if yeah. you're going to spend a little bit more money, but you're it's probably less likely to break. So you're not mm-hmm. going to have to buy a new one, that kind of thing. Yeah. So and I guess when we're talking about this too, we're talking about different glass coatings and uh, you know all that kind of stuff. To the to the eye, like the, an eye test, sure. you know, because you can have all these different specs and like all this stuff, and it, and they say it does whatever X, Y, or Z performance. But when you're looking through, let's say you're looking through a pair of like like uh, pro staff binoculars, mm-hmm. um, and then you're looking through HGs, like Monarch HGs. So um, what are 
what are you going to be looking for? Because at a, at a glance to like an untrained eye, you're like, okay, I don't see, I don't see, you know, $800 worth of difference between the two of these. Sure. You know, it's like, what, what am I paying for when I get this? Yeah. So the first thing I would do, and, and again, it's going to differ depending on, you know, what shop you're in, where you're at, what the weather's like, that kind of thing. But um, I try to get, put yourself in a situation where the, the light is not very good. So sometimes that can be in a store, a lot of false lighting, a lot of shadows, things like that. Um, if you happen to be in the sun, I actually, what I recommend people to do is to actually pick a, pick a subject under a tree, you know, even if it's just a leaf. Mm. I like to look at the bark, the veins on the leaf uh, that are in the shade. You, you want to challenge what you're looking at, right? Or ch- challenge yourself to pick out details, right? So if you're, if you're taking two optics out and if it is a pro staff and a Monarch HG and you go into a darker environment, mm-hmm. it should really be noticeable yeah. to the naked eye to the naked untrained eye. And so what you're, what you're generally looking for between those two kinds of optics are look at the difference in color, you know, look at the reds and the greens and they should become far more, they should appear far more vibrant, mm-hmm. right? In the Monarch HG or Monarch seven, for example, whereas in the pro staff, they might be a little flatter. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look, if you just take a pro staff out, it's pretty good. You look at it and you don't compare it against anything else. It's, it's very, yeah. you know, it's very reasonable for just about a lot of people. But if you're looking for that extra performance, you're going to notice the Monarch HG or Monarch 7 really kind of stick out. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, and all of this is done in the shade, right? Yeah. All right. So you're having to deal with some lower light. Look at the veins on the leaf. How much detail can you see? Or if the leaf has any serrations on it, you know, you can do it from far away or relatively close. Either way, just keep it in mind. I mean, if you're 100 yards away looking into a shade, or let's say 50 yards away looking into a shade underneath a tree, if you're looking at those little edges of the leaf, the serrations, that might be a pretty good distance to look at that kind of thing because, I mean, you're, you may not see that with the pro staff, mm-hmm. but you might see it with the Monarch HG, Yeah. right? Um, so how true the colors are really truly to your eye the way they should be, mm-hmm. uh, looking at the detail, look at the bark, Right, mm-hmm. because you have minor variations in the bark, so it's kind of all different shades of brown depending on what kind of tree you're looking at. Yeah, so look at those kind of things. Um, the other thing you could do too is so with the higher end glass, you have, you know, obviously you should be ha- you should be getting better edge to edge quality. Mm-hmm. Now something with the Monarch HG, um, it it's noticeable, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's called a uh, and the glass that we actually use is called a a field flattener lens system. It's a different kind of glass. And so, you know, all lenses are convex, but essentially the way a lens works and lo- or a sort of looks like in any kind of optic is that it's thick in the middle. And then it, as it kind of tapers out, it, it actually, the glass thins, mm-hmm. right? So what na- what naturally happens is that when light and color, when light is hitting the edges of that glass, if, if it doesn't have the right coatings, it's not polished enough. Mm-hmm you're going to get this curvature or fuzziness at the edge. And that in theory should actually improve as you step up in price point and grade of glass. If totally. you have a field flattener lens system, the lens is still convex, but it's, it's close to being of even thickness throughout. So instead mm-hmm. of having really thin edges, it's almost the same as it is in the middle. And that's why if you're looking at a, a low grade optic, you'll see a pretty noticeable sweet spot in the center, mm-hmm. right? And then it'll really degrade or the, or the image will deteriorate. Yeah. as you look out at the edge. So one of the things I like to do is actually get like a telephone pole or stop sign, anything that looks uh, just, you're looking for a vertical, something that's vertical and up and down. It's right? straight, yeah. And you're you're just going to 
slowly take the uh, the field of view of the optic and swing it side to side very slowly. Mm-hmm. And when that edge hits whatever the, the line that you're looking at is, you can tell if it's bending. Look real carefully. You tell yeah. if it's bending. You certainly can tell if it's fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so that that's one test that I really like to do. Yeah, to kind of determine the quality. Totally. Well, and that's that's one thing is I I set out recently to determine the difference between a Monarch Five and an HG mm-hmm. because I was like, okay, I th- I know that there must be a difference. I just don't sure. know. So Brad uh, and I spent probably an hour just out here doing all these different tests, like looking at low light, looking at distance, looking for colors, um, you know, and it's like each one of those things is like, okay, the Monarchs, you know, the 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 Monarch Five performs really well, like in that certain, you know, like the the center. Um, but when you get to the edges, and this is kind of like what the huge thing for me was, was the edge to edge clarity, and just realizing that you have probably another, at least another third, or maybe some more of like actual usable optic in the HGs, you know. Um, and for most, and like for honestly, for people that are hunting back Midwest where you're not doing a lot of glassing, like. The Monarch Fives are perfect. Like, they're awesome because you don't need huge field of view. But, like, if you're hunting out west and you're going to be glassing hills all day long, you want to have as much usable um, surface area as possible because that's going to mean you're going to not miss things as easily, you know. Yeah, 100%. You're spot on. I mean, honestly, I just kind of think about, well, whatever you're doing. I Put it in the perspective of muley hunting, right? So, if you're glassing a, you're glassing a wide, expansive I mean, I guess mountains, but open desert, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a lot that you can see and you're trying to get, especially if you're trying to spot any kind of movement in a day bed, mm-hmm. right? Just looking, looking for a flick of an ear. I think it's important, almost vital that you go very slowly, right? You mm-hmm. have to, you can't just be moving that optic constantly. So if you can see more, more detail with accuracy in your field of view without having to feel like you're losing something, mm-hmm. right? Um, it makes your job a lot easier and you cover more ground. Uh, it's true of a spotting scope too. You know, spotting scopes because of the, the massive amount of magnifi- magnification that comes with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're already kind of looking through a tunnel. Yeah. You always got yeah. tunnel vision when you're looking through an optic in general. But uh, but generally speaking, you're going to be up closer on your target. So you want to be able to move slowly. So mm-hmm. if it's sharper from edge to edge, you're going to be able to do that and actually see more and then move to the next frame. Yeah. Right. And actually yeah. be a little more effective. So yeah, you're, you're spot on with that. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the one thing for people that just, you know, if you don't know, like understanding that that difference is as minor as it may seem can, it can be the difference between success and failure. It, you really, know? it really can. Yeah. And, and just also overall level of comfort, right? Mm-hmm. If you're looking through now, the Monarch five is a great binocular. Yeah. Um, it's really a well-reviewed product all the way around. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there we, there is better. Yeah. And so if you're using the Monarch HG, um, you're probably, I'm not saying, because I've used Monarch 5 for long periods of time, and I have never experienced a headache. Mm-hmm. But you're less likely to get any kind of headaches or feel that, that true tunnel vision effect when you're using a higher-end, higher-grade glass. Totally. You know? So it's something to think about if you're going to spend all day on your glass. Yeah. Which bird watchers and hunters, certainly hunters out west, will be doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And with regard to scopes, is it a similar thing? Like, because uh, with a scope, you're really focused on the center. Like, the edge isn't as important with a scope. Mm-hmm. Um. So how does how is glass clarity factoring in? I know I know chatting with Nate, 
um, you know, the more magnification you get, like you're saying, the more distortion you get and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, obviously it plays as a factor for sure. Yeah, it does. I mean, for me, the, the, the sweet spot is about 30 X. If you can go 30 magnification on a scope, I think you're in really good shape. Mm-hmm. Some of the zooms go up to 75 or even more, but on just a scope. Yeah. Oh my goodness! On, I had to. I had, I are you talking about? Are you talking about a spotting scope, right? Are you talking about rifle scope? I was talking about a rifle scope. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Shoot. I was like, no, no, no. Seventy-five. No, that's insane. <laughs> what I've are seen, people doing? No, with that? I, I mean honestly, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I think that if you know thirty, thirty is about as much as I've seen realistically in a scope, and it's too yeah. much. There's really no reason to use thirty mm-hmm. unless you're really trying to figure out what you're looking at. And I would kind of contend that, well. You should be using a binocular for that because yeah. you just point your muzzle in the direction you don't know what's there, right? <laughs> um, but no, I think um, all of so everything I talked about with glass, right? It all applies to scopes to to shooting scopes as well, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and and actually even more because you're you're going to be a little bit more unstable with the scope, you know, unless you're perfectly set up at the range and you're on a bench and mm-hmm. everything's locked in a vice something like that, then you're perfectly still. But if you're out hunting, I mean, again, if you're trying to hold at 15 power, you got a long shot, you're dealing with wind. Uh, Out here, you're probably dealing with some kind of mirage as well, which is distorting where you think your point of impact needs to be. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's there's a lot to think about, but it all applies. It's the same way. Totally, yeah. Well, I think that... um, you know, with, with scopes, honestly, when, when you're hunting, like you're saying, 16 power is, is pretty much all you're going to need. Um, and even for long range shooting, 16 power is, is common because you want to have that additional field of view. Um, but, uh, so I guess kind of on the scopes, another question that a lot of people have is first and second focal plane. Um, (laughs) and I know we talked a little bit about this before the show, but that's a really fascinating one for me because I think that uh, a lot of people are using BDC reticles, especially in muzzle loading. Um, there's not a lot of people using dialable red, uh, reticles, sure. um, just because the the need isn't there. But you do have Shorter a need range, to yeah. use like a BDC. Um, and so uh, the first focal plane is is going to allow you to use the BDC at any magnification without having to make any adjustments. And so, can we talk a little bit about what first and second focal plane are, and why it's beneficial to have first focal plane? Um, when when using BDC reticles. Sure. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, one thing, this is a question, we talk about this all the time, right? Because it is it is often difficult, I think, for, unless you're in the industry, it's just, it's a difficult concept to understand. Mm-hmm. So the outcome, I'll start with the outcome. Essentially, with the first focal plane, the reticle will change size as you move through the focal range, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so your reticle still stays the same size in relationship to the target, but it, it, it's hard to explain it that way. That's probably not the best way, but it, it's, it's still the same. It's the same reticle in relationship to the target, right? The mm-hmm. target to your, to your eye will be, will change size, mm-hmm. but your sub tensions never change. So yeah. the, the advantage of the first focal is that if you need to zoom out, zoom in quickly, you don't have to rethink about your holdover or mm-hmm. what your, what your point of impact is or where, where you should be lining up on the BDC. So the advantage of a first focal is huge, I think, because you can make a last-minute adjustment without mm-hmm. having to go into a different set of memory or even look. Maybe you have to pull your eye off the glass, mm-hmm. and you have to look at a different a different series, of like another dope card. Right? Yeah. Look at yeah, some yeah. different different holdover points. Um, and also, first focal plane reticles are etched mm-hmm. in the glass. And so generally, and there's a reason for that, but generally that also 
um, creates a, a higher level of durability. Yeah. All right. So if you're using a kind of an entry level scope or, or a low lower price point scope, generally it's going to probably have a copper wire reticle, mm-hmm. right? And that's and it's usually going to be second focal plane, and that's sometimes what can get knocked out of alignment, mm-hmm. right? and then then you got more problems. But if it's etched in the glass, then you know again you're, it's not going to get knocked out yeah. of alignment unless fewer moving parts. Yeah, unless you just toss it off a cliff, falls a thousand feet. I mean, I'm <laughs> sure some things can happen at that point. But yeah. That's not always realistic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a big fan of first focal. You do pay up for it a little bit more, but mm-hmm. you're starting to see a lot of these things that used to be really high end attributes. You really had to pay up for Now that stuff's kind of starting to come down, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, into the middle few hundred. I mean, you get first focal plane scopes for I think three, 400 bucks now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Never really used to be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're looking at a scope and you're holding it up your eye, like you would test any scope out, let's say you're at a store, right? You got to think. So behind you have, you have the eye box and then you have the tube, right? Mm-hmm. Inside the tube is an erector and it's the same shape as a tube, uh, but it, it houses the magnification and the vast majority of the optics inside of, of the scope. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously you're going to have lenses in the eyepiece and you're going to also have it uh, in the objective lens as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your magnification will actually happen in, inside the erector. And so, you know, first focal plane is actually what they call at the front end. So if you think of just that tube on the front end, your reticle, that's where the reticle is going to be. So it's actually farthest away from your eye. Mm-hmm. It's on the back, the front end of the erector closest to the objective lens. Yeah. Okay. In, but so in, so behind that you have your magnification lenses. Mm-hmm. So w- what's going to happen when you, when you magnify, you're going to, that those lenses have to move back and forth. Yeah. Right. And so now you're moving that that magnification on top, and f- so going close and far on top of that that reticle. So the mm. reticle's changing in size. Yeah. But the reticle's not moving, so your subtensions remain the same. But when you look, you know, and your holdovers remain the same. So essentially, but when you're looking through it and you're zooming in and out, it's going to change size quite mm-hmm. a bit. Okay. And so that is why it's because it's in front. The reticle is in front of the magnification lenses Mm -hmm. and those lenses are moving on top and back from it. Right. It's just moving back and forth. Yeah. So on a second focal plane scope, it will, the reticle will actually be closer to your eye on the backside of the, of the erector. So it's moving essentially, you you don't have the magnification lenses that they're, they're moving in front of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the reticle doesn't change size, but because the magnification is, is moving, it's changing your point of impact. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest thing to consider is a with the first focal plane scope, um, you have a little more durability because it's going to be etched. Your reticle will change in size, and it weirds people out when they start shooting with it. But I mm-hmm. promise you, generally speaking, it's a lot easier to use in the field once you get used to it. Yep. And but and again, because your subtensions always remain the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and then with a second focal plane scope, I think for, you know. Because first focal was really popular in Europe. Mm-hmm. So before, maybe about four or five, six years ago here in the States, it started becoming more and more popular. So you see more companies doing, there's more SKUs available to the consumers out there. Um, but I mean, second focal plane is really more of your price point type stuff now. Yeah. So, you know, I just think it's easier to learn and maneuver with a first focal. Mm-hmm. It's worth paying up for. I don't know. Is it, yeah. Did I explain any of that all right? Is I, I it think understandable? So. Let, let me just repeat what you're saying so that I make sure that I'm understanding it. And if I'm understanding it, 
then probably everybody's listening. All right, fair well. enough. Um, so I think that what you're saying is like you have two different, you have two different planes. So you have the plane that your target is on, and you have your plane. And so with a first focal plane scope, the reticle is in front of the magnification. And so it remains on the same plane and in the same relationship to your target, regardless of what you're doing with magnification. However, in a second focal plane scope, the reticle is um, behind or closer to your eye uh, of the magnification. So it stays on the same plane as your eye. However, when you magnify it, it is changing with regard to its relationship with your target. That's great verbiage. Yeah, great. That's a great way to explain it. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yep. Okay. Yep. And I think, you know, again, the end result is is your uh, whether or not you want to be able to memorize your holdovers mm-hmm. and be able to have the quick access to magnification without having to do math in the field. Totally. Right? Well, and I can I can personally attest. So I put a first focal plane scope on um, a, my, a 6.5 PRC. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like a 2 to 10 or something. And so you have a... Uh, there's a lot of situations where you want to have lower magnification. If you're especially around here, you go from thick to wide open, and sure. it's really diverse territory. And you know, uh, my wife ended up taking a really long shot on an elk, and we had to zoom in. And rather than having to, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than having to figure out what we're trying to, you know, refigure out all of the uh, the, the subtensions, they're all exactly the same. So mm-hmm. it's like, say you're you're zero at a hundred, your next one's two, three, four just to be simple it's never that simple but just to keep it that way sure um you know if you're at two power or at 10 power it's those sub tensions are still going to be you know zero at 100 two three four you know all that's going to be the same um you know whereas that would be changing all the time with a second focal plane right it's a game changer for hunting totally I mean, you often don't really get a lot of time unless you're taking a really if you're poking out the you know seven eight hundred yards mm-hmm. you might find whatever you're shooting whether it's an elk or, or a buck or something like that or even doe just browsing you know you might have all the world all the time in the world to kind of make your adjustments but yeah um, i feel like i've been on hunts before especially with black tails and things like that where you, you don't have but a second to spare if mm-hmm. you got to make an adjustment i just don't want to have to think about it mm-hmm. you know i want to make a clean shot and be able to do it in a timely manner and and put it where i need to put the shot where it needs to be so first yeah. focal helps with that so you know what? It's really the only disadvantage for the most part is getting used to the the reticle changing size and your, you know, based on your eye. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes, I think, because I've seen people look at it, you know, at the point of sale, and they're, and and immediately they don't like it. But the reality is, that you can get used to anything. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of understanding why you might want to get used to it. Yeah, you know, um, it, but it's worth the extra money you spend up for it. But even having said that, today you really don't have to. It's not like you're reaching in and spending an extra thousand bucks mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, yeah. You know? So if you're getting a thirty mil tube with a uh, on a first focal plane, you're you're in great shape to do a lot of things. The vast majority of what most people need totally. for hunting. Totally. Yeah. All right. So one thing that we've mentioned throughout this podcast um, that I want to kind of clear up, and it's verbiage, and it's sort of this thing of like in the industry we kind of understand like an erector objective bell like all these different things um let's break that down a little bit so you know 30 mil tubes you have like all these different terms what do they mean and why are they important so 30 so okay where we're commonly we're used to 36 34 30 millimeter tube and one inch tube right Mm -hmm. so that is essentially obviously the that's the diameter of the tube in millimeters and so well, except for the inch, right? That's yeah. so that's just a common like the main common, tube, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. So the, the the middle portion of the scope, the higher that number, 
the more room the reticle has to move. So the mm-hmm. reticle is going to move on an arc axis, okay, inside the scope when you're as you're changing your elevation. And mm-hmm. so the reality is, as the tube size grows, that reticle can move farther, which means it could essentially you can aim higher and shoot farther as a result. In, you know, in real easy terms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're looking to shoot two thousand yards, right? The the, the gold standard is you got to have a thirty four mil tube. That's how much you truly need to really poke out at that distance. At, so at that, a thousand, you said. At even at two thousand. At two thousand, right? Okay. So, um, and it de- like, so- and, de- and it all depends also how the scope is mounted. This is why there's an emphasis on mounting the the, the objective lens as close to the barrel as possible mm-hmm. to move that scope down, still be effectively seated, and you can gain more elevation mm-hmm. as a result. Right. That's why that that distance is so important. Uh, but with a 34 mil tube, you don't you really don't have to worry about it. Usually, it reaches out farther than w- most people are willing to shoot or mm-hmm. can effectively shoot. You know, if you want to get to a thousand yards, I, I say um, to make it easy on yourself, a 30 mil tube is really mm-hmm. nice. And if you're just shooting a couple hundred yards, I mean, a one inch is perfectly fine. Yeah. So let's talk about the objective bell um, because there's a lot of people that, uh, well, and even myself included, I don't fully understand what its purpose is i you know the the common uh, accepted answer is that a larger objective bell allows more light into the scope so it's yeah. better in low light situations um, but i know that glass coatings and quality have a lot more to do with light acquisition than just a larger objective bell so what are you getting when you go from like a three to nine by 40 to you know like like a, a three to nine by 50 with a larger objective yeah, all it is is light gathering. Mm-hmm. That's the correct verbiage, right? Light gathering. There's another term we use called light transmission. Light transmission is the percentage of light that is passing through back to your eye as a result of as a result of what's happening in the prism. Because mm-hmm. when the light, you know, prism, well, okay, you're not going to have a prism in a scope, but let's say a binocular, right? A prism is there to actually flip the image upside, right side up as mm-hmm. it comes back to your eye. But you're going to lose light. Anytime light's passing through a medium, you're going to lose it, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so the reality is the light transmission is a percentage that often you'll see advertised and it's usually per lens surface. So you got to mm-hmm. be careful, right? Cause you'll see, you'll see advertisements out there say 99.8% light transmission, right? Yeah. Per fine, surface. Fine we print. 30 lenses fine, in there. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, you know, the maximum amount of light transmission you can really get is about any, somewhere between 94 and 96% depending on the kind of optic it is. Well, a quick, a quick note on that. Um, so how, how many lenses are in, like let's say an average binocular or an average scope. You know, that's a great question. I actually, I think it's going to differ from each company. I, I it differs, it differs even within our own line mm-hmm. because I don't see cross sections of every single optic we have. I believe that with magnification, I think it's in that two to three range, and then the objective lens. Well, let's say I'm thinking about a binocular, and the mm-hmm. objective lens can be again another two to three, maybe four. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have some additional ones inside of the the scope inside mm-hmm. the erector. So you're in that range of probably between six, eight, ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, Depending it, on the it does vary. Yeah. You know, we have a binocular, for example, that appears very bright, has a great field of view, but it has fewer lenses in mm-hmm. it. And so it has, it, it gives off that, it gives off that feel that it is brighter, but it's, it doesn't have the resolution, right? Yeah. Cause you're, you're, you're not, you're taking optics away from it. So it's going to take away from the resolution. Sure. Yeah. yeah so you, that's the, you're kind of in that range. Okay. Yeah. Cause that makes it, cause you know, you say per surface, so it's like you have 90, 
99 or whatever per surface but if you have 10 lenses that's like 99 and then that's you know escalating as it moves through each lens you yep, know exactly you know if you're losing two tenths of a percentage point on each lens surface then mm-hmm. obviously it's going to work its way down so 99.8 yeah. percent light transmission really doesn't apply but yeah. so light transmission again does apply to the coatings and also what's happening inside the optic whereas mm-hmm. light gathering really relates to the, the magnification and the objective lens so the the only function of the objective lens is to gather light mm-hmm. it's nothing to do with field of view or anything of that nature okay so if you want to get a number for light gathering um and this is what you'll see if you kind of look at the spec sheets right you get let's say uh if it's a 40 millimeter you know, if it's 40 millimeter objective lens, it's the diameter in millimeters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're shooting at a 10 power. Yeah. Okay? So it's not common, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I'm using that because it's an even number, right? Mm-hmm. You're, so if you divide 40 by 10, you're getting four. That's going to give you what's called your exit pupil. Mm-hmm. Your exit pupil is literally, if you hold an optic up and you look out in the distance and you see that little hole of light, it's it's light that's coming back into your eye. Okay. All right. That, that exit pupil is will give you an idea. It relates correlate or correlates, excuse me, exactly to your pupil. Okay. Right. Um, when we're young, your pupil will dilate anywhere from two to nine millimeters over the course of a day. Obviously that, that kind of window sort of condenses as we get a little bit older. Mm -hmm. Right. And ideally you want most of your optics to be in that four to six range, Mm -hmm. you know? So the bigger that exit pupil, the more light that's, it's getting back to your eye, but that's, what's okay. called light gathering mm-hmm. taking the objective diameter dividing it by the magnification you're on mm-hmm. because again i know i kind of mentioned it earlier but if you zoom in the natural physics is that you will lose field of view and you will lose light mm-hmm. right and um and you also you also lose eye relief mm-hmm. right so there's there's always a give and take yeah. which is why having too much magnification on a rifle scope is not going to really do you much good mm-hmm. so. and so when people are looking at a scope, um, two things, two, I guess two two questions here. So uh, you talk about field of view. Uh, and you said the objective bell has nothing to do with field of view. It's all, is that strictly determined by magnification or are there other factors? No, it's definitely by magnification. It's also, there's other things that I haven't been privy to that, that happen in the engineering design phase of the optic mm-hmm. where they can squeeze out some field of view you know, for, for the top end products, get a little yeah. bit extra, but, but you're talking like small percentages, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to have tunnel vision, right? You're, you're still probably going to be in that range of, if you're thinking, if you're standing in a 360 degree circle, mm-hmm. right. And you're just thinking about the piece of the pie at which you're looking out at, you're, you're going to be anywhere from four to eight degrees. Yeah. Right. And so give or take, again, this is all, it all differs from, because you can have a three to nine by forty uh, across four different manufacturers, for example, and they will all give you different field of views. So you can create too much field of view. There is a point at which you will degrade the optic if mm-hmm. you create too much field of view, and so there is a plateau there. But in general, that's why it's nice to have a wide range. Mm-hmm. You know, three to nine's kind of comp, right? It's it's sort of a, a, a staple and a go to. Yeah. Um, and if you can get even, a, so on the longer range precision scopes though, you know, what I'm working with, so what I shoot with is a 3.2 to a 17, mm-hmm. which works perfect for me. It's a, I won't go anything outside of that range. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could go lower, you know, but if you're shooting anything close, 
you might deal with parallax issues and such, but um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, that's kind of how I see it. Right. Okay. So. Okay. So I guess now the next question, um, see, you know, so much I'm trying to like, okay, interpret and then like break down everything. So the, um, so we're talking about, uh, uh, so I have a note on parallax. So don't let me forget about that. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but then my next question here is, uh, light gathering versus like your exit pupil and your, um, light transmission if people are looking at optics and they're really wanting to get into the weeds, um, what is the most important? Like, are you looking at light transmission? Like, is that the most important factor there? I Okay, so for me, optics, it's always resolution first. It, mm-hmm. Light, light gathering is really important. It's definitely important for a hunter, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, often enough you are, you know, a lot of times these, your, the animals are hunting or coming out in literally the last couple of minutes of yeah, the season, right? For sure. So you do have to be able to see. Resolution, though, is important because, again, you're trying to count points, look for little ear flicks, things mm-hmm. like that. So I'm always going to go to the grade of the glass first. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely looking for something that is ED glass. Now, there is glass just as good as ED in a lot of those categories that aren't labeled ED. Mm-hmm. The only way you really get through it is by looking through it. So I think if you're looking at a scope, look at multiple different price points and and qualities to mm-hmm. find out what's really going to work. Try to create, create the stage in which you think you'll be in. Mm-hmm. It's just very difficult to do in a store, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so quality of glass is always going to be important for me. And then when it comes to low light, what I'm looking for, particularly with what these companies will advertise, um, and I think I misspoke earlier. I was talking about lens coatings. I really meant to say these are prism coatings that I'm going to talk about. Silver alloy. Mm-hmm. So you have aluminum alloy, silver alloy, magnesium alloy. And then you also have a, what's called a dielectric coating. Mm-hmm. And it's what's put on the subprism of of the prism of itself that really enhances contrast yeah. and light transmission. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of looking for some of those key terms, you know, okay. to see if those yeah. companies advertise them. Um, those are pretty standard. And I think you can, I don't know that every company advertises them, but you probably can find chats online, mm-hmm. forums where people yeah. have mentioned it. They've done, they've gone through the weeds, done the research, right? So for me, that's important, the prism coatings. Okay. You know? Got because it. I think with a with a lens coating, every company has their own proprietary stuff, and you know, if let's say if you're looking at Nikon, everything from three hundred dollars and up will have the maximum number of lens coatings on it, mm-hmm. right? The maximum allowable. Yeah. Before it's just pointless to put any more on. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't really worry about that. Like I know Nikon's going to deliver great glass. We know Swarovski's going to deliver great glass. You know, mm-hmm. there's brands out there that have a name and a, tra- a tradition, so you don't have yeah. to worry about it. Now it's kind of more about fitting exactly your need, the right skew, if you mm-hmm. will, right? So, sure, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't think, I think you covered that pretty well. So now back to parallax. Um, you mentioned that, and that's a term that I'm sure that a lot of people are not familiar with. And it's a term that is sort of like first and second focal plane, where I think it's really difficult to explain unless you already know what it is. <laughs> and so it's like, um, is there is there any way that we can kind of try and break that down a little bit just so that people know? And just, just I guess, in a practical standpoint, from a practical standpoint, it's pretty simple. Um, if, you, if you have a scope that has parallax, it's going to be like on the left side of your scope and it's going to be, um, actually, the left side of your scope or some of them have it even in like the, the objective bell, right? Mm-hmm. I've seen it like that. Sure, too. yeah. Um, and so you're going to have different ranges on it. So if you're shooting at 100 yards, you dial it to 100. You're shooting at 300, you dial it to 300. And as long as you're on the right range, it's essentially 
it is a it is a type of focusing tool but it is a lot more complicated than that and it's just going to help you be more accurate as long as you're on the right range so if you don't care about getting into the weeds just try yeah it's like take take like um for those of you listening just take that and like run with it just have your parallax set to the right range it's going to help you be accurate um but now we can kind of try and get into the weeds a little bit and try and explain it for those of us that are you know just curious about it so yeah it's really an optical phenomenon that happens generally speaking within a hundred yards and in mm-hmm. at, at its greatest point where your your point of reference and your target are shifting so they're not in a in true alignment so that's this is the best way i kind of know how to how to how to describe it now if you look on your your parallax dial right you will notice that the the distance on the dial from zero to 100 and 100 to 200 200 300 and so on decreases as you move the knob because there's less parallax happening at longer distances so mm-hmm. you don't need to adjust so that's the reason if you're shooting if you have your parallax knob dialed in at 500 and you're walking out on a range let's say you're just mm-hmm. walking out your targets and you sort of forget to do it at 600 700 which I, i'll be honest with you, i don't even mess with it because your your focus isn't really changing mm-hmm. so yes it kind of acts as a focus right because it yeah. does it brings things into clarity at the longer distances in particular but it's really Parallax is when, and I always use red dots as an example, but the reality is it applies very much to a duplex reticle, any kind of reticle you have, is that if you move, if your scope and your gun are on something in particular, it could be anything, right? And you just move your head from side to side a little bit, you'll see, particularly in close range, you'll see that reticle shift off of your target, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it's, it's an optical illusion, um, but the, the t- just the way the target, your reticle is going to not be on the same spot you aimed for, mm-hmm. right? So some companies do a better job at adjusting for this, and they, I'm not even sure how they do it, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the higher end optics, you try, you kind of can tell that if you put your reticle on something that's like 20 yards away, mm-hmm. and you'll do the uh, do that little test from side to side, you'll see that there's hardly any parallax. Yeah, and it that. The point of reference, so the reticle, is going to be exactly where you aimed it. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want a lot of movement. Now, if shooting long range, it really doesn't matter that much because, again, your parallax doesn't really take effect at that point. Hmm. And um, and then, really, you're just using that knob to just di- dial in a little bit of focus. Yeah. So it's all about that optical illusion of shifting your frame of reference off of your target. You know, And it happens mostly in the close distances, mm-hmm. So, which is why it's so important uh, if you're you know, you'll talk to people who, especially close quarters type experts, a lot of military guys will be able to attest to this, that it's so important to have a true one power scope for, for, you know, close quarter combat mm-hmm. and, and or a red dot that is parallax free, mm-hmm. right? Cause if you're in the, if you're in, you know, even if you're going through training and you're going through a shoot house or something like that, right? You're, you can't have that dot has got to be exactly where you're placing it because you're shooting in close quarters. It's got to be perfectly accurate, yeah. you know, and you never, you know, in those kind of scenarios, I imagine they're not getting the perfect time to put up the gun to their cheek and, and, and get their head tilted the right way, right? So so it makes a big difference. But it's all about parallax is happening within 150 yards and in. Yeah, I mean, and, and ultimately with, with parallax, uh, I think that practically it's just like a magic tool that you can use and make it better. And so it's right. like there's so much to parallax and it is extreme like you said like it's hard I, to explain even how they accomplish parallax adjustment you know i 
guarantee you there's plenty of people that could describe it and give you way more information than I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always had limited view as to what the manufacturing side of it does. Mm-hmm. I think that's why some of these companies have become so great at what they do is they do sort of keep their secret recipe in-house mm-hmm. and they don't let mm-hmm. a lot of people see it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But uh, but it is important. Totally. Yeah. And it's uh, it's not just like a random dial inside your scope. It is something that you want to make sure you're utilizing if your scope has it. Um, 100%. And uh, so I guess kind of moving on here, we're going to we're going to wrap things up, but we want to give like some practical tips as well. And so we want to talk a little bit about common zeroing mistakes, things that uh, you're oftentimes doing wrong and things that I've done wrong for years before I finally, you know, had the education to know that I was what I was doing was wrong. Um, And so like the first one is like um, your rings. And so Mike, I'm sure is someone who, you know, deals with optics, you know, someone will buy a you know, $1,500 scope and then buy like $30 rings and put them on there, you know, and, and then wonder why their accuracy is off, you know? Yeah. I think, uh, for, for one thing, if you're really planning on shooting long range, I, I would definitely go with more of a tactical style mount. I like mounts, mm-hmm. right? You can go with a two piece mount, especially if you're using a shorter base type scope. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of tactical style mounts because they have more points of contact. So you're mm-hmm. going to have more hex heads to work with. The key, though, is really making sure that you're tightening each hex head at, at as best you can at the same level. You have to go around instead of I think people over tighten one side, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's one area where you're going to throw off your zero, provided you've already zeroed it, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is when you're obviously mounting the scope, so you have you don't have it truly zeroed at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so just making sure the tension is the is consistent throughout. And using a tactical mount. Now, if you're not using a mount and you're using rings, the more quality companies out there that build rings, generally there's still more points of contact. There's going to be there's going to be just more screws involved, and it's just going to increase the the surface area and how much durability you have with it, right? And we're talking about screws like to screw the the top strap into the the ring base. Correct. Right? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, so th- I mean that's a big deal. Um, not mounting the not mounting the scope very low very low to the bore is is a problem I see with a lot of people. Now it depends on what you're using it for because the reality is you can mount the scope pretty high, and if you still have enough elevation, you're you're fine. But I mm-hmm. still think it makes it you're easier to zero and shoot if your scope is mounted as low as possible. So just getting the right height on the rings is yep. really important. And then, um, you know, in terms of being at the range when you're actually zeroing, so you kind of alluded to it earlier. I think it's important to run through your your elevation and your windage all the way through. And the biggest reason I like to do it is because I want to see if if there's any tension changes, right, mm-hmm. depending on the quality of the scope that you have. Sometimes when you get a little bit closer to the top end, the, the, the spring is not as tense right yeah, so yeah, yeah. you might actually that you might feel the tension change mm-hmm. as you go up on the elevation and so i like to get I, I just move it around it's just like you know it's like rounds in a magazine i just if i have a magazine that's been loaded for a long time i'll i'll take the rounds out and and then just load them back in so mm-hmm. that i'm keeping that spring active mm-hmm. um so i think that's always good to do and that way you just know the tension so if you really are planning on dialing elevation you want to know what that tension is particularly if you're doing that in the middle of the field, again, hunting, right? Mm-hmm. Might only have a couple of seconds to make that change. Um, so that's important to do. Um, you know, in terms of just making sure you're stable, make sure get a bubble level, 
Yeah. And I, oh, I tell yeah. you, yeah, you know, yeah. I think that has changed how I shoot. And I think it's really important. A lot of people miss on that and people want to shoot long range, but I mean, I think most of us understand it's kind of an expensive game to get into. Mm-hmm. So don't cheap out by, by, by not getting a bubble level. I think get a bubble level. It'll help you balance things out and, and keep you on point, particularly when you're just trying to zoom in a gun. Well, it or even, have a, excuse me, zero gun. Totally. Well, I think it, I've even found that it matters at, you know, even 300 yards because if you're, you, you have your, you know, ballistic holdovers and, um, you know, you're off to, you know, say you're canted, maybe even just slightly off to the side, um, you're not going to be on, you know, whatever your ballistic calculator says that you should be on that holdover. It's going to be off to one side rather than being dead on. And that's, I mean, at 300 yards, that can be the difference between a a miss or even worse, a wounded animal that you gut shoot or something, you know. And so it's it's definitely worth if you plan to shoot, you know, something other than a duplex reticle and you want to use those ballistic holdovers, definitely make sure you're investing in like a bubble level or at least taking it to somebody who does have a bubble level yeah. and having them do it, you know. Yeah, having your own mount kit is, is mm-hmm. helpful. But you're 100% right. You can, depending on the caliber, 300 yards can, um, you know, an angled reticle. Totally, It's yeah. not, you know, that's canted is, is, is a problem. Mm-hmm. It can be a problem. Yeah. And look, if you're really planning on shooting 1,000 yards or more, then you really have to get that. Yeah, it's really out. a problem. Man. It really is. <laughs> it just yeah, gets worse now, and worse the farther you go. Yeah, <laughs> because you're missing, instead of missing by a quarter inch, you're missing by inches. Yeah, you're totally. totally off the plate or yeah. off your animal, mm-hmm. you know. 100%. Um, yeah so cool well is there anything else that you want to uh chat about today mike or i mean there's obviously tons of optic stuff we we can go over at another time but i think for today i i've kind of out of stuff so yeah i think i think in case you're uh in case all the listeners aren't sleeping by now optics (laughs) is tough right because it's it's important for what we do in the field it's important to understand it and a lot of people don't know because they're not given the right information out there Mm -hmm. and um hopefully they Hopefully the listeners have gotten something they can take from this and make an informed purchase Yeah, and, yeah. and try to match themselves up. But I think the biggest thing is just test the optics out and take time with them. Mm-hmm. Don't just look through it for two seconds and pull it down from your eye. Mm-hmm. You know, if mm-hmm. you can, if you're in a store and it's the only place you can look at the scope, try to find something, whether it's an, when it, whether it's like an end cap and rest the scope on something look at the same target and check it out with three or four different scopes and, and just see what looks best. Mm-hmm. Move your eye back and forth side to side and, um, and, and look for something with detail, yeah. right? Don't just look to look right. Yeah. Cause everything will look the same. So pick something that's a little bit, has a little bit higher contrast. Mm-hmm. It's a word I probably should have mentioned more today is, is contrast is really important for picking out detail, but ultimately um, don't be afraid and don't be shy to test them out, read reviews mm-hmm. and, um, and make the most informed purchase you can. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And don't believe everything you hear. Yeah. That's for do, sure. Do it for yourself. <laughs> Good gracious. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Don't believe everything you hear. Um, so, uh, yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you guys are watching on YouTube, like comment, subscribe the whole nine yards. Um, definitely let us know if you have podcast ideas or if you have any questions about optics, let us know, and uh, we will take care of that. Uh, and also, if you're listening on the audio platforms like Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a review because that is going to help get this content into the hands of people who need it. And um, we will see you on the next episode.